Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, doing a duet rather than a trio this week. And in today's episode, we will break down an unusually large number of dance headlines. It was a very busy week in dance news, and much of it was major news. We will talk about critic Gia Corliss's essay on how dance can help us all figure out how to re-enter our own bodies as we start, at least in the United States, to sort of emerge from pandemic restrictions. And then since this week marked the 20th anniversary of the premiere of Legally Blonde, we will spend a delightful few minutes discussing just how much Tony Basil's choreography contributes to that movie, first of all, and also the origins of the bend and snap, because that is a story that is very much worth telling. Um, But first, just a little housekeeping, which this week is a reminder that before we had a podcast, we had a newsletter. And in fact, we still do. The Dance Edit newsletter goes out every weekday. It's a quick and handy and often rather fun way to catch up on all the dance stories of note, of which there have been a whole lot recently. So you can subscribe to the newsletter for free at thedanceedit.com. And thedanceedit.com is also where you can learn more about the Dance Edit Extra, the new premium audio interview series that we've been talking about nonstop and which we are so very close to launching. So stay tuned. All right, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which just might end up being the bulk of our episode this week. There's so much going on. So much news. So after 29 years, the beloved Dance Hub Edge Performing Arts Center has announced its permanent closure due to business difficulties resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. That's devastating. I mean, they've obviously had a difficult roller coaster of a year and a half, but I really thought they were going to pull through. I hope so, too. It's just heartbreaking. I mean, they were such a pillar of the dance community. So it's very sad to see them go. Yeah, end of an era. Um, Taking a turn into happier news, Jennifer Lopez and her New Yorican Productions Company are going to help develop a whole slate of contemporary adaptations of classic musicals for TV and film. Um, This is a collaboration with the production company Skydance and the music company Concord, and Concord holds the rights to the Rodgers and Hammerstein catalog, so those musicals could all be in play for adaptation. And Lopez also has an option to star in at least one of the projects. So I don't know, should we do some dream casting? Like, which Rodgers and Hammerstein role do you want to see J-Lo in? Oh my gosh. Mm, too many options. I am such a J-Lo stan, I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, I'm really just asking so I can talk about the idea I'm currently fixated on, which is let's give The Sound of Music another go, like maybe as a mm-hmm. series, and have J-Lo as the ultimate Baroness von Schrader. Definitely here like, for that. So here for that. <laughs> or if there's room for yet another Cinderella, I, she could do a pretty killer fairy godmother too. I want JLo as the fairy godmother. Please, please <laughs> let that happen. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Let's do all of it. Let's do all of it. Agreed. Speaking of dance and music, well, we're always speaking of dance and music, but BTS <laughs> has released a new song titled Permission to Dance, accompanied by a very dance-filled video. The band's label, Big Hit Music, says that the song is, quote, dedicated to anyone who is having a bad day or is discouraged in the face of reality, end quote. The choreography for the song's bridge includes the international sign language for dance, fun, and peace, which reflects the inclusivity of the track's message. Just so much fun. The, the song, the video, I feel like it, it definitely does its job of uplifting and helping to brighten your day. Yeah, it's exactly what we needed right now. And I feel like we always end up discussing BTS 
on the weeks when you're not on the pod, Lydia. (laughs) I got very excited when I realized we'd be able to give this video a little shout with the help of our resident BTS fan. Yes. So the 2021 Emmy Award nominations were announced on Tuesday with the Television Academy, first of all, giving its regards to Broadway. The list includes several nods each for the Disney Plus recording of Hamilton and the HBO recording of American Utopia. And Broadway icon Billy Porter is also up for Best Lead Actor in a Drama Series for his work on Pose. Speaking of Pose stars, MJ Rodriguez made history as the first transgender performer to be nominated in any of the major Emmy acting categories. She's up for Best Lead Actress in a Drama Series. Congratulations. That's huge. Clapping right now, even though you can't see it. It is about time. (laughs) About time. And then finally, the two choreography categories, um, which are Outstanding Choreography for Variety or Reality Programming and Outstanding Choreography for Scripted Programming, they are both absolutely stacked. I mean, they are pretty much every year, but especially this year, we've got Paris Goebel nominated for the Savage by Fenty show, multiple Dancing with the Stars nominations, both Mandy Moore and Luther Brown up for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, and none other than Debbie Allen for Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square special, which did you know she choreographed that? I was so out of that loop, I had no idea. And now all I can do is just like, ship the heck out of Debbie and Dolly because I have to assume they're best friends and that is absolutely correct. Yeah. <laughs> for I for them so. to be best friends, you know. I hope that is a thing. Anyway, the Primetime Emmy Award ceremony will air September 19th on CBS and the Creative Arts Emmys, which is where the choreography awards are handed out, will be happening September 18th. And moving on to New York City Center's upcoming 2021 to 2022 season, uh, it is set to include a fall for dance festival with four commissions, plus the launch of two annual dance series and an 80th birthday celebration for choreographer Toilet Arp. The commissions include works by Ayodele Cassell, Lara Lubavitch, and Justin Peck, in addition to three dances reconstructed by the Verdon Fosse Legacy, which is an institution dedicated to preserving the work of Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. Tons of dance stuff in their season to get excited about, as usual. Um, Idaho's Ballet Sun Valley Festival has returned after a pandemic hiatus, and in fact, it's newly expanded. Um, We're a little bit late to this news because the first part of the festival's two parts this year actually concluded on Tuesday. It featured mixed programs starring dancers from several different companies. But up next, on August 22nd and 23rd, Ballet X will take to the outdoor stage at the Sun Valley Pavilion, and they'll perform Matthew Neenan's full-length contemporary ballet, Sunset 0639 Hours, and also a mixed rep gala performance. So you can find out more about the festival and get tickets at balletsunvalley.org. The immersive show Sleep No More is scheduled to reopen in New York City this October after closing due to the pandemic. The return of immersive shows where performers might actually physically interact with you, that feels like a major post-shutdown milestone. Very exciting. Yeah, and it employs so many dancers. That's great news for them, too. Yes, Um, New York's Park Avenue Armory has announced the long-delayed premiere of Bill T. Jones' work, Deep Blue Sea, will happen at last this fall. Um, The work features a cast of more than 100 performers, including Jones himself. This will be the first time in a long time that he's danced with the company. And it was originally scheduled to premiere in April 2020. It was among the first productions to be canceled during those terrible first few weeks of pandemic shutdowns. This feels like a full circle moment, a bit of closure. Um, Deep Blue Sea will run at the Armory from September 28th to October 9th. 
And wax on, wax off. I had to do it. A musical (laughs) adaptation of the hit film, The Karate Kid, will have a pre-Broadway tryout next spring featuring choreography by Kiani and Mari Madrid. Kiani and Mari continuing to be literally everywhere. Yes. And you're right. The inevitable wax on, wax off number. Like, I'm excited just thinking about what they can do with that. Oh, same here. Uh, lots of Broadway or Broadway adjacent news happening this week. There is a new Guys and Dolls movie in the works, or actually it's officially been in the works since 2019, but the project has gained some new steam now because Bill Condon has signed on to direct. And he's probably best known for directing the film adaptation of Dreamgirls, but he also co-wrote the film version of Chicago. So no word yet on the timing for this new movie or on its choreographer. Stay tuned. Dance USA has released a new study showing COVID's profound impact on the dance field. A few grim but not surprising facts. Most dance company respondents reported a decline in ticket sales of more than 74%, and approximately 80% of individual respondents reported that they were unemployed during the pandemic, while 50% of individual respondents are still not back to work yet. According to Broadway World, Dance USA's objective in administering this survey and analysis is to be able to make the necessary connections between individuals and organizations in the field, to provide access to needed resources, and continue to advocate on behalf of the field for much-needed relief. Yeah, as you said, a few big surprises in the report, but a lot of important information. So we'll link to the full study in the show notes. On Friday, So You Think You Can Dance, producer and judge Nigel Lithgow received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in a ceremony that had been postponed because of COVID. Um, Lithgow's friend Priscilla Presley and his two sons acted as presenters, and Lionel Richie and So You Think Judge Mary Murphy were also in attendance, so I'm sure he made the hot tamale train. Congrats to Nigel. Fun fact, actually, his star is the 2697th star on the Walk of Fame. And the dance world recently lost two deeply influential figures, Suzanne Douglas and Aisha K. Faines. Douglas was an incredibly accomplished stage and screen actress and dancer who starred in Tap and appeared in the television series The Parenthood. She was 64. Faines was a broadcast and print journalist who graduated from Yale University and was part of the website Grapevine TV. Her commentary and work had appeared on MTV, Essence, Entertainment Tonight, and Hot 97, to name a few, and she was the founder of Women Love Power, a platform dedicated to empowering women. She was also a multi-talented dancer who was a competitive salsa dancer. Faines was 35. Suzanne Douglas and Aisha K. Faines were both unbelievably inspiring and their losses will be incredibly deeply felt. And if you have not seen Suzanne Douglas and Gregory Hines dancing to Cheek to Cheek in the movie Tap, please go watch it immediately. They're so incredibly charismatic together and the dancing is unsurprisingly fabulous. It's out there on YouTube. We'll link to it in the show notes. So in our first discussion segment today, we're going to talk about dance critic Gia Corliss's latest magnum opus in the New York Times, um, which talks about how bizarre it is for those of us in the US to be allowed to take up space again after more than a year of making ourselves smaller in accordance with pandemic regulations. Gia explores the idea of retaining the sense of slow, conscious attention to one's body that many of us felt so acutely during shutdowns as we come back into the world and as we return to watching dance and dancing with each other again. There's there's a lot 
in this essay, and much of it touches on subjects that we've discussed at some length on the podcast previously. But the context here is different in that Gia is looking at things like our relationship to public space and our relationship to our own bodies through the lens of some recent performances that reflect the in-betweenness of our current moment. One event Gia mentions is the 2021 River to River Festival, which was created in association with movement research and presented three processions led by Miguel Gutierrez, Okui Okpokwasili, and the illustrious Blacks. And it seemed to deal with the idea of, as Gia put it, uh, what it means to inhabit our bodies and the city uh, as individuals and as a group. And she mentions that in a procession led by Gutierrez, he chanted, healing is not a space of forgetting. And that was just one part of this piece that struck me because as it goes on to say, it does feel like a lot of people have shoved the last year and a half out of their minds. And this is a concept that I hope the dance world at large takes to heart as it emerges from the darker days of the pandemic. And that kind of connects to something that, you know, as Margaret pointed out, we've discussed in previous episodes uh, of taking care of ourselves mentally and physically as we try to navigate this time. And, you know, that challenge will continue even as the conditions you know, improve. Yeah. Oh, Miguel Gutierrez, always getting it right. Always. Yes. Um, I, I'm an Edwin Denby obsessive. So I loved the references that she made in the piece to his essay, Dancers, Buildings and People in the Streets. Because Denby writes about the power of deep looking about how looking at something and really seeing it is actually an art form in itself. That was his whole MO as a dance critic and a, and a writer. And I think that's a skill that we have all honed during quarantine, mostly because we've had no choice but to slow down and, and study our very limited surroundings and, and also our own bodies because they were so, they were put at the forefront in a way that they aren't usually. Um, the idea of protecting and taking care of our bodies in the face of a pandemic. And yeah, we can and, and should bring that new awareness back to theaters, back to dance performances and back into our own movement practice as things start to reopen. And I also liked her observation that a lot of dance performances, like the one at the River to River Festival that you were mentioning, Lydia, are now taking the form of processions, which feels so right in this current moment for multiple reasons. I mean, first of all, just logistically, they make sense. They're outdoors and not confined to enclosed spaces. So they're like a low-risk activity, but also actually embodying this feeling of being in a liminal moment where we're neither back to normal nor fully shut down. So we'll link to the full piece in the show notes. It's worth a read. There's a lot, a lot in there. All right, that was, we took a turn for the, the philosophical there. But now to close out the episode, we're going to lighten things up a little bit and celebrate the 20th birthday of the cult classic movie Legally Blonde by pointing out just how important dance was to the success of that film because it really, truly was. Um, last week, the Times ran an oral history of the creation of the movie, talking to a bunch of cast and crew members, not Reese, but a bunch of cast and crew members, including choreographer Tony Basil, um, about what made this sort of unlikely film work. And there were all kinds of gems in the reporting, more than a few of them from Basil, who is entertainment industry royalty and deserves much more recognition than she's typically given. 
There were just so many gems in this piece. The New York Times story revealed that the original script was raunchier, for one thing. Um, it was more in the vein of movies like American Pie. Uh, and we learned some of the other names that had been floated for the character of Elle. Um, in addition to actresses like Christina Applegate, one was Britney Spears. And since dance is so deeply associated with the movie, but you know, kind of in a more understated way, um, mainly because of the bend and snap. I, I couldn't help but wonder what the dancing might have looked like had she been cast. What a what if. <laughs> I know, my gosh. Uh, and, and how that would have later affected its transition to the stage, even though, of course, the dancing in the musical was already you know so robust and intense. And the adaptation still seemed to be so seamless, even though there were such different forms of dance uh, between the movie and the play. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the fact that this movie spawned a huge Broadway show because mm. like there've been a lot of I, we've talked about this before too. There've been so many movie to Broadway adaptations that have felt aggressively shoehorned like this movie didn't really want to be a musical but we're going to make it sing and dance, yeah. you know. But Legally Blonde, I mean the idea of that film as a stage show makes complete sense first of all because yeah, it already has music and dance in it obviously. Actually, I love the reveal in the oral history that they filmed an alternate ending for the movie with a big musical number on the courtroom steps, and that footage is in the universe somewhere. I like, know. Can someone leak that, please? It has to be a matter of time. I'm holding out a... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, but beyond all of those like musical tendencies in the film, its whole cast of characters seems kind of made for Broadway in the sense that they're all a little bit cartoonish in a stage-appropriate way. But the story is about how they defy those cartoony stereotypes in a way that I think actually lends itself really well to like interesting expositional songwriting and stagecraft. And to be honest, the resulting musical, I think it's so much fun. It's super frothy. It's not like my all-time favorite thing, but it does really capture the same infectious, like zingy energy of the movie. And a lot of that is thanks to Jerry Mitchell's choreography. And, and direction he also directed, but especially his choreography. So again, credit for choreographers where credit is due. Yes, always. And also in the Time story, we learned that the idea for the bend and snap originated when the writers were at a bar. Uh, the producer, Mark Platt, wanted um, kind of a major set piece in the second act, and the writers wanted to center it around Elle and Paulette, which led to Elle trying to help Paulette attract the UPS guy. And then Kirsten Smith, one of the screenwriters, said, you know, like this, basically, uh, and essentially did the now famous move. And from there, uh, Tony Basil refined it into choreography and taught it. And Jennifer Coolidge, who played Paulette, um, struggled with the choreography. But in the process, she tweaked it to make it true to the character, like kind of you know grabbing her chest instead of doing the chicken wing move with the arms that everyone else did. I love that quote so much from Jennifer Coolidge, where she was saying she was having a really hard time picking up that move. And she tried to excuse herself a little bit by saying to Tony Basil, like, well, that's this is what Paulette would be like. She wouldn't be any good at it. And Tony Basil said, Jennifer, you need to learn this dance number and do the absolute best you can, because even if you're trying to do your best, you'll still, still be the worst be dancer enough, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it worked so well <laughs> for that character. And also at one point, Tony Basil mentioned that in interviews, she'll be asked, oh, you did the bend and snap. And she's choreographed iconic work for legendary artists like Tina Turner and David Bowie. But more people know her mm -hmm. for this short dance number, which speaks for one to how important dance was to the movie and to the role dance plays in making art accessible and relatable. Mm -hmm. For this film, dance kind of inadvertently worked as a branding tool because one of the first things people think of in association with it is, you know, that bend and snap move. But it was also simple enough that made it participate 
participatory. People can do that step and have fun with it. And I think it deepened their connection to that piece of art. Um, and personally, and admittedly, this is probably just because I'm a dance person, but there's something about dance in film, um, having something from a movie that you can embody in that way that helps you to engage maybe more, more deeply or just deeply in a different way uh, with that work. And I think there's something magical about that. It's not necessarily any different from, say, reciting lines from a movie, but being able to say, oh, you know, let me try to do that move that person just did makes it enjoyable in a specific way, I think. And the bend and snap almost had the appeal of a TikTok dance in that sense, I think, but just many years earlier. That is so true. If this movie came out today, can you imagine the bend and snap just being all over TikTok? All over Absolutely. It. Yeah. Absolutely. Could be in the works now. You never know. So, of course, since things catch on so many years later sometimes. I'm sure it's already out there. Um, and also, I just always liked kind of briefly getting back to the Britney Spears thing. This is just sort of an aside, but I, I just I always like to consider what an alternate version of a classic film would have been like whenever I find mm -hmm. out that a strong dancer was almost cast in a starring role. Like, um, you know, MGM wanting Cerise to play the, the female lead in North by Northwest. That's another one that I'm always like, what would have happened if that had actually happened? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then also Tony's comment about being known for Legally Blonde points to how difficult it can be for choreographers to get recognized. I think even when they're credited, not everyone in the general public will necessarily pay attention, um, perhaps especially when that information was harder to access. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And even today in the, the age of IMDb, it's still so hard to access. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, first of all, yes, she should be remembered for so much beyond Bend and Snap. But also, that is an iconic film moment. And let's attach her name to it permanently. Tony Basil was also one of the lockers, which also speaks to the diversity of her work and the incredible impact she's had on dance as a whole. She's been everywhere. She has done everything. Basically, bow down to Tony Basil. Yep. She is the best. She deserves her flowers. That's where we should end. <laughs> Tony Basil deserves her flowers, yes. please. Yes. All right. That is our episode for this week. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Dance Edit.com.